See, totally worth it. It was great. <laughs> All right. And we had you well, we had well trained. The music cut off. I didn't even have to say anything. People just started coming in. Wow. You guys are trained well. Well, happy Palm Sunday, everyone. Uh, it's a time that we... I'm going to move this. It's a time that we get to come and uh, celebrate. It's the first Sunday of our Holy Week where we get to celebrate uh, Jesus and everything that he's done for us and first his entry into Jerusalem, which we're celebrating today. And upon reading a little bit more about Palm Sunday, scholars are really kind of up in, up in the air arguing over exactly when it happens because we celebrate Palm Sunday the Sunday before Easter. Some scholars think uh, it actually happened during the Festival of Booths because they're waving palm branches, and typically that's something that they have around at Festival of Booths, which is uh, six months earlier than Easter. So I can see why people like to condense it into one week because it just makes for a little bit better story rather than having Jesus enter triumphantly into Jerusalem and then six months later actually start doing something. It's a little less uh, exciting. So we tend to put it into the one week to celebrate. Some scholars say it's the same week um, because they just say palm branches are all around the, uh, all this, the time for that. So, But Jesus comes and enters triumphantly into Jerusalem, which is what we're going to be looking at. It's a story that many of us are aware of. And Jesus is enacting and everything he does when he enters into Jerusalem is for a very specific purpose. He has an idea in mind when he's doing it. Everything that he does has some sort of symbol to it, and he's making a great claim uh, by doing these kind of things, a massive identity claim as he comes in. And so the grasp, the depth of what Jesus is doing in his triumphant entry, we must look at both the scriptural context and the historical context of what's happening at the time. So we're going to begin by reading the classic Palm Sunday passage, which is Matthew 21, 1 to 13. So you can open your Bibles up to there if you'd like to follow around, or obviously it's up on the screen as well. And I'll be reading from the New Living Translation here. As Jesus and the disciples approached Jerusalem, they came to the town of Bethphage on the Mount of Olives. Jesus sent two of them on ahead. Go into the village over there, he said. As soon as you enter it, you will see a donkey tied there with its colt beside it. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone asks what you are doing, just say the Lord needs them and he will immediately let you take them. This took place to fulfill the prophecy that said, Tell the people of Jerusalem, Look, your king is coming to you. He is humble, riding on a donkey, riding on a donkey's colt. The two disciples did as Jesus commanded. They brought the donkey and the colt to him and threw their garments over the colt, and he sat on it. Most of the crowd spread their garments on the road ahead of him, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. Jesus was in the center of the procession, and the people all around him were shouting, Praise God, or some translations will say, Hosanna, for the son of David. Blessings on the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Praise God in the highest heaven. The entire city of Jerusalem was in an uproar as he entered. Who is this, they asked. And the crowds replied, It's Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. And continuing on, Jesus entered the temple and began to drive out all the people buying and selling animals for sacrifice. He knocked over the tables and of the money changers and the chairs of those selling doves. He said to them, the scriptures declare my temple will be called a house of prayer, but you have turned it into a den of thieves. 
So we see right in the Matthew passage exactly what kind of scripture context is surrounding this as Matthew chooses a very specific prophecy. And it's the prophecy that Jesus had in mind as he starts entering Jerusalem on a donkey. And that's from Zechariah 9, 9 to 17, which we read a part of in our um, response. I don't think I told Brad that I was reading that, so that was really cool that that was the response. But if we flip over to Zechariah, we see uh, the full prophecy that Matthew has in mind, that Jesus has in mind, that the people have in mind as Jesus is enacting out this prophecy. It says, Rejoice, O people of Zion. Shout in triumph, O people of Jerusalem. Look, your king is coming to you. He is righteous and victorious, yet he is humble, riding on a donkey, riding on a donkey's colt. I will remove the battle chariots from Israel and the war horses from Jerusalem. I will destroy all the weapons used in battle, and your king will bring peace to the nations. His realm will stretch from sea to sea and from the Euphrates River to the ends of the earth. Because of the covenant I made with you, sealed with blood, I will free you prisoners from death in a waterless dungeon. Come back to the place of safety, all you prisoners who still have hope. I promise this very day that I will pay two blessings for each of your troubles. Judah is my bow, and Israel is my arrow. Jerusalem is my sword, and like a warrior, I will brandish it against the Greeks. The Lord will appear above his people. His arrows will fly like lightning. The sovereign Lord will sound the ram's horn and attack like a whirlwind from the southern desert. The Lord of heaven's armies will protect his people and they will defeat their enemies by hurling great stones. They will shout in battle as though drunk with wine. They will be filled with blood like a bowl, drenched with blood like the corners of the altar. On that day, the Lord, their God, will rescue his people just as a shepherd rescues his sheep. They will sparkle in his land like jewels in a crown. How wonderful and beautiful they will be. The young men will thrive on abundant grain and the young women will flourish with new wine. This is the prophecy that Jesus has in mind as he picks out the symbols of what he's going to do as he enters Jerusalem. Zechariah is historically one of the later prophets chronologically in time. You can tell this because he says he's going to fight the Greeks who are rather late in history of Israel. Uh, This is specifically Alexander the Great who's starting to sweep through the nations. So if you know your Old Testament history a little bit, we know that Assyria comes and they take over Israel and they're the first great empire in the ancient world. And then Assyria gets taken over by Babylon who at that time also takes over Judah, the southern kingdom of Israel. And then Babylon doesn't last very long. They last about two kings before Persia comes and takes them over. And then after Persia, that's when Israel's allowed to go back to the land. They build their second temple. And now Greece is coming through with Alexander the Great. So he's one of the last prophets in the Old Testament chronologically. And there are three things in his prophecy that I want to highlight that Jesus is fulfilling during this week that we are celebrating. The first and the most obvious is Jesus' choice to ride on the donkey. It's in both passages. I saw my Facebook actually yesterday, which I wish I saw before I had made these slides because I would have put the picture. But someone was referring to Jesus choosing a donkey over a war horse to enter in. And they suggested that if Jesus did it today, it would uh, be instead of riding in on a tank, he would ride in on a tricycle. Which, I, that's a little too extreme, I think. I mean, horses and donkeys are kind of similar already. So, 
To, to make it a little more personal for me, I prefer to think of, instead of riding on a tank, Jesus rides in our old vehicle, which was a 2001 Honda Civic, <laughs> that the bumper was a different color than the rest of the car, the air conditioning didn't work, and only one out of four windows rolled down. So I like to think of Jesus riding in that, but maybe to make it a little more universal, it's, instead of riding in the tank, Jesus is riding in maybe like the Pope Mobile instead, where everyone could see him through the nice clear glass and he can wave to the people. There's your modern equivalent, Jesus in the Pope Mobile instead of a tank. Uh, the thing we need to know about Jewish people in the first century is that they all knew their Bibles quite well. They went to synagogues, their version of church, almost daily. So if you think it's hard enough to come just on a Sunday, try like four to five times a week. These people were dedicated. Uh, they would go and they would hear scripture readings, a reading from the law and then a reading from somewhere else in the Old Testament, maybe something from the history like First Kings or Chronicles, or they would hear maybe some wisdom literature. Uh, but quite often it was from the prophets. And they especially liked the texts that were considered messianic texts. So prophecies that spoke of a coming Messiah, a coming Savior that would help set up the kingdom of God on earth. They really liked those ones. And so they were really good at memorizing scripture. A lot of them couldn't read, so that's the only way they could um, reflect on scripture daily. And so they really liked doing these messianic texts, of which this Zechariah one that we are looking at was one of them. And they really, the reason they were really interested in these texts is because they thought the Messiah was going to come really soon. This was going to happen in their lifetime. It's bound to happen soon. And so they memorized these texts and looked forward to the person who would come and set up God's kingdom. And so Jesus, knowing his Bible and the people knowing their Bibles, know that when Jesus is entering Jerusalem on a donkey, their minds are immediately going to this Zechariah passage and its context. Not just the part of riding the donkey, but the whole part that we read. So by choosing to ride in the donkey, he's making a very specific claim and a very big claim that he is the Messiah, that he's coming to establish God's kingdom on earth. And the people recognize this as their response says. They start praising God. In a more sociological, the society kind of context, his choice of riding on a donkey. I don't know about you, but when I was younger, I thought it was just he was humble because he was riding on a donkey and kings would never be seen on a donkey. I guess I had this negative context of riding on a donkey, which wasn't there because apparently kings did ride on donkeys. Uh, but it was a sign of uh, for that they were on civil matters, not matters of war. The war horse was military. The donkey was for civil matters. And so Jesus is coming in in peace. This triumphant entry that Jesus makes is not like the triumphant entries of the Roman military brigades that are coming through that the people were used to. Used to. It's the humble entrance of a king into his city. Just as David humbly came in on a donkey after he got kicked out of Jerusalem because of his son Absalom was rebelling against him. Once his son died, David rides in in peace on a donkey, reclaiming his throne because he's the rightful king. So because Jesus rides in humbly on a donkey doesn't mean he doesn't come in victorious. If he rode in on a horse, there's a specific claim that he is not 
actually the king of Jerusalem, that he has to come in on a horse and conquer and make the city his. But he comes in on a donkey in peace, in civil matters, because he is already king of Jerusalem. There's no need for battle. He comes in as a king already. And the people attest to this. They shout, Hosanna, praise to God, to the son of David. They give him the royal title. Because only someone from the line of King David could be the rightful king of Israel. So the people recognize that Jesus is riding on the donkey. He's making the claim to be the Messiah, to establish God's kingdom, to be the king from the line of David. And so they shout praises and call him son of David. They're recognizing that Jesus is purposely acting out Zechariah's prophecy. And so they respond like he is. More specifically, uh, another point of Zechariah's prophecy that's going in the back of the mind is this one. I will remove the battle chariots from Israel and the war horses from Jerusalem. I will destroy all the weapons used in battle. And your king will bring peace to the nations. His realm will stretch from sea to sea and from the Euphrates River to the ends of the earth. The people were expecting a political kingdom of God to be on earth. In the Old Testament times, in the times before Jesus, the kingdom of Israel and the kingdom of God were the same thing. Wherever Israel was established, that was the kingdom of God. And so, in their minds, they're expecting this earthly kingdom for Jesus to set up. And the book of Isaiah has this great hope that it speaks and this imagery that it puts out throughout it, that God comes down and sets up his rule in Jerusalem and all the nations would come pouring in and bow down to God as their king and that they would study the law and the law would go out from that place throughout the world and God's authority would be established all over the earth. Zechariah shows the removal of weapons. No more war horses, no more chariots, no more weapons. They're all destroyed because when God's kingdom is established, we don't need any of that stuff anymore. All of humankind is um, united under the authority of God as king. And so there's no need for weapons because no one's fighting against each other. Everyone is pledging allegiance to God. The weapons have been removed and peace has been secured. And Jesus is acting out this prophecy, coming in on a donkey in peace because there's no need for weapons. And so people are celebrating because this is what they're anticipating. They're anticipating no more battle chariots, war horses, bows, swords, any weaponry of murder or warfare will all be removed because Israel's kingdom will be established and they're celebrating that this is going to happen soon. But this wasn't the first triumphant entry into Jerusalem. Just over a few hundred years before Jesus, this man named Simon Maccabeus entered Jerusalem in triumph. And the books of 1 Maccabees and 2 Maccabees and the Apocrypha talk about uh, these entries. So in 1 Maccabees 13, 51 to 52, it says, On the 23rd day of the second month in the 171st year, the Jews entered Jerusalem citadel with praise and palm branches and with harps and cymbals and stringed instruments, and with hymns and songs, because a great enemy had been crushed and removed from Israel. Simon decreed that every year they should celebrate this day with rejoicing. He strengthened the fortifications of the Temple Hill alongside the citadel, and he and his men lived there. 
And then 2 Maccabees tells the same story in this way. It happened that on the same day on which the sanctuary had been profaned by the foreigners, the purification of the sanctuary took place. That is on the 25th day of the same month, which was Kislev. They celebrated it for eight days with rejoicing in the manner of of the festival of booths, which is why many scholars think uh, Jesus' entry was during this time. They had been wandering in the mountains and caves like wild animals. Therefore, carrying ivory-wreathed wands and beautiful branches and also fronds of palm, they offered hymns of thanksgiving to him who had given success to the purifying of his own holy place. They decreed by public edict, ratified by vote, that the whole nation of the Jews should observe these days every year. And so still to this day, they celebrate this time of Simon coming into Jerusalem and purifying the temple from the impurity purity and the corruption that foreign people brought in. And that's what they celebrate Hanukkah for eight days every year. It's a celebration of this purification of the temple. And uh, the foreign rulers during this time had actually taken down the altar that was inside of the temple on which they gave their sacrifices to God and put up their own altar, which they sacrificed to all these idols and false gods, which is like the worst thing you could do in the mind of a Jewish person during that time. And so with great celebration, they come in and they tear down that altar. They cleanse the temple and start offering proper sacrifices again. And so Simon and his brothers, which is Judah, also known as the Hammer, which is an awesome nickname, (laughs) Judah the Hammer Maccabeus, and Jonathan Maccabeus, his brother, he didn't have a cool nickname, and then Simon, who also didn't have a cool nickname, uh, they were able to capture Jerusalem again with battle after battle after battle, much in uh, the same kind of description that Maccabees gives it, as you see in the book of Kings, of God delivering um, them in battle, or judges, God raising someone up and delivering Israel in incredible ways from battle. And so this was the expectation they had in their mind. They already saw Simon come in with palm branches waving and and praising and purifying the temple. So they thought that God's Messiah would come and enter into Jerusalem and would cleanse their temple from all the foreign um, corruption that it had suffered. Which makes sense because the temple was central to Judaism during this time. And for many, many centuries, it was the central aspect of the religion. It was where God dwelt. So if God dwelt there, then why wouldn't the Messiah that God's sending go straight to God's house and purify it and restore it? And Jesus does just this. After entering Jerusalem, he heads straight to the temple just as everyone expected him. And he does cleanse it but not in the way that the people thought he would cleanse it and definitely didn't cleanse it from the things that the people thought he was going to cleanse it from. He actually kicked out the people that they thought was keeping the temple pure. So the money changers would stay in there and they would, people would bring their corrupt and impure Roman currency and they would exchange it for the temple currency, which is much more pure and appropriate for being in the temple. And so they would exchange it, and they would be able to use that to purchase animals for sacrifice. I mean, how con- we, we're all about convenience now. How convenient is that? You don't have to bring your lamb all the way from Galilee, miles, and walk it down. You can go into the temple, and you can buy a lamb, or you can buy doves, depending on your economic status, uh, right in the temple there, and, and sacrifice it. And yet Jesus comes in, and with some good old righteous anger, starts flipping tables, which is one of my dreams, is just to go in a room and 
flip a table one time. It'd be fun. Uh, he starts flipping tables. Money's going everywhere. He takes a whip. He starts, like, driving out animals. Um, and people are like, okay, okay. You're cleansing the temple. Not from the people we think, but we like the passion. It's looking good. All right. So maybe now he'll just kind of redirect that passion and kick out those awful Romans. Jesus clears out these people because his, he says the, house, uh, the temple is supposed to be a house of prayer. And these people are in the court of the Gentiles. The only area that anyone who is non-Jewish and wants to worship God can come and worship God. And it's really tough to worship and pray when there's a market and uh, animals making lots of noise around. So Jesus kicks them all out because the people had taken Isaiah's vision of God coming and establishing his kingdom and they narrowed it because Isaiah talks a big part of Isaiah's prophecy is not only that God's reigning in Jerusalem but that all the nations are coming in and worshiping and bowing down to God. And by this time, the people had very made that image very narrow. Yes, God was going to come and reign in Jerusalem, but nations weren't going to come in. God was going to slaughter all those other evil nations, those pagans, and get rid of them. It would just be the Jewish people and maybe a couple of Gentiles who were nice to them. And that was it. They had narrowed God's vision. And Jesus comes and he cleanses the temple so that nations can come in and worship God. He cleansed it in a way they weren't expecting. And now that he's been flipping tables and driving out animals and showed some of that righteous anger, the people thought it was time for him to show it against the Romans. This was the expectation they had of him, that he would enter Jerusalem as a king, that he would overthrow their oppressors and establish God's kingdom over the earth, bringing everything under God's authority. And he would cleanse the temple. And Jesus spurs on these expectations through his triumphant entry on Palm Sunday. And he does fulfill all these expectations, but not in the way that they expected it to be. It was an unexpected expected fulfillment of expectations. And we've already talked a little bit about the cleansing of the temple, but what about Jesus' own kingship and his establishment of the kingdom of God? Having read uh, First and Second Maccabees for school recently, I, I understand all these expectations they have. It is just filled with different kings and princes and governors coming in and fighting over their land and putting rules on them and then taking the rules off and then putting rules on them and taking it off. I got confused. There were so many names of people coming to try to take over the land. There's this Antichius Epiphanes. They're also hard to pronounce names that came in and then there's a King Demetrius that comes in and fights him and then there's a Ptolemy that comes in and fights him and kicks out King Demetrius and then King Demetrius' son, which very confusing, is also named Demetrius, comes back in and fights them and it's confusing. There's this political instability and no wonder they had this desire for God to come and set up his rules so that things would be stable and they wouldn't be persecuted and oppressed anymore. This is why Simon Maccabeus rolls into town in triumph and they celebrate because they were able to throw off the shackles of these King Demetrius or whoever was king at the time and they celebrate that they're finally free. And this is why Jesus acts out Zechariah's prophecy that states that there's no more weapons of war 
And this is why the people cried out with praise, Hosanna, and celebrate as he comes in on a donkey. Simon and his brothers secured peace from battle after battle after battle after battle. But it only lasted a short time, only during their life. So one generation, because they're all brothers. And they didn't live particularly long. Uh, it was very well what Jesus said, that those who live by the sword die by the sword, because they all did. And so very shortly, they had some independence by winning battle after battle before marching into Jerusalem. And so this was the expectation of the people. By great, a great battle, God would deliver them from Rome. So Jesus enters triumph. Uh, let's try it again. Jesus enters Jerusalem triumphantly, but not after winning battle after battle. He heals people from their diseases and illnesses, which, I mean, people didn't expect, but was pretty cool. I'm sure they enjoyed that. And now he's heading into Jerusalem, and surely, surely a conflict with Rome was coming. Jesus fulfills Zechariah's prophecy that, about the weapons being removed and peace being destroyed, but he doesn't remove the weapons by entering into the city by force and slaughtering everyone, all the enemies before him, and confiscating their weapons. It was not a mission to enter a country and remove their weapons of mass destruction. He, in fact, does not remove any battle chariots or war horses or swords or bows. So how does he fulfill this prophecy? He actually removes the most powerful weapon of all. He removes the enemy's number one weapon, the actual weapon that war horses and chariots and bows and swords rely on, and that is death. He removes death. Jesus' victory has left the enemy unarmed and defeated. No longer does death carry the sting it did before. It has been rendered utterly and completely useless. This is not the weapon that the people thought Jesus was getting rid of. They definitely thought a more literal swords and chariots and bows and war horses. But it was the best weapon that Jesus could get rid of, and that's why he did it. Because the sword and the bow and the war horse and the chariot, they all rely on death for their true power. Fear of death can rule our lives. When I was a child, I was, I guess, maybe a strange child, but I was afraid of death. <laughs> I constantly thought about it, which is strange for a child. But I did, and I was afraid. My, my life was ruled by fear, and then Jesus set me free from that when I came to him. Over a period of time of learning more and more about him, I was set free from, from that fear of death, and, which is kind of appropriate since Fear Not was our last series. It can lead to great anxiety and fear. And yet, Jesus' power of removing it is shown in Paul's words that it says, uh, oh, here we go. I had it memorized and I lost it. To live is Christ and die is gain. It's only something that Paul can say because Jesus defeated death. So he removes the weapons out of Israel. And he also succeeds in establishing God's kingdom, bringing all nations and all creation under God's authority. The Maccabees were able to throw off foreign occupation for a brief time through their warfare and bloodshed, using the weapon of death, but it didn't last very long. Jerusalem 
as a Messiah, not upon a war horse, but a donkey, humbly, not with an army, but with a group of worshipers praising God. Not exactly what the people expected, but fairly close. He's heading to the right city, at least. He enters the temple and shows some of that good old righteous anger, flipping tables, driving out animals. Again, not towards the people they expected, but still they like the passion. It's going good. And then he starts teaching. He starts criticizing Israel's leaders. And then he just goes off and starts celebrating Passover with his disciples, which is almost the same meal that we're going to be celebrating at youth on Thursday. So make sure you register for that. Passover Cedar on Thursday. You can register online. Okay, plug done. Anyways, this is where, this is where what Jesus does is it's not anything close to what the people expect once he enters Jerusalem and yet accomplishes the prophecy all the same. The king enters triumphantly filled with celebration just as any other royalty does. Simon Maccabeus did it in much of the same style as Jesus with palm branches being waved. Queen Elizabeth does it in her chariot pulled by horses. And Jesus does it with a donkey and people crying out, Hosanna. The monarch is crowned at the coronation. Simon Maccabeus is given the high priest uh, vestments from Exodus. They got some nice jewels in them if you read Exodus. And uh, he takes up his authority. Queen Elizabeth gets a crown of gold and jewels placed upon her head, which is apparently very heavy. If you guys have watched The Crown, she had to practice. And Jesus gets placed upon his head a crown of thorns instead. Then the monarch takes their place of authority. Simon takes his place in the temple, the center of Jerusalem's life, religion, and worship. The most important place in all of Jerusalem, in all of Israel, really. Queen Elizabeth sits on her throne, a picture of beauty and grace. And Jesus is nailed on a cross outside of Jerusalem, outside of his city. In a picture of sacrifice and suffering. The kingdom is then established and all authority is placed under the ruler. Simon offers the first proper sacrifice in the temple for years and years and years. Queen Elizabeth is serenaded with choruses of long live the queen. And Jesus is risen from the grave. Jesus establishes the kingdom of God on earth. He tells his disciples after his resurrection, all authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. All authority, everything is under the authority of King Jesus. And this is what we celebrate this week. That all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to Jesus. Every single thing is ruled by King Jesus. Jesus has entered Jerusalem in victory. Jesus has ascended to the right hand of God in victory. 
And someday he's going to come back again in victory. And that's what we're celebrating. New Testament theologian N.T. Wright rightly says that Easter week should be the biggest party every single year. On the 4th of July, the states set off fireworks and firecrackers like crazy, like constantly. You'd think there's a war going on outside. On New Year's Eve, we all gather together and celebrate and count down to the entry of a, a new year and new possibilities. But Christians at Easter should be known as the wildest partiers. People all over should be prepared that on Easter week, Christians are going to be setting off firecrackers down the streets. That Christians are going to go and they're going to buy the grocery stores out of all the food and fling open their doors and their community halls and invite everyone in for a banquet to celebrate that Jesus is king. This should be the case because there's nothing worth celebrating more. There is no greater news to proclaim from the rooftops, from the very tip-top of Mount Baker, than that Jesus has been risen from the dead. That's what we celebrate this week. And so in that victory, we're going to praise and worship the great Trinity Western Band here. It's going to come up, and we're going to worship together. And perhaps you feel like the Jewish people during the time of the Maccabees, just full of instability. You're getting so confused at all the names of issues and things that are being thrown at you, like I am confused by names in the books. And it just feels like an unstable time. We're going to have prayer team members, Wally and Sylvia at the back there, and Brad and someone else at the back over there, Gary. Uh, and they're going to be there to pray for you, to declare that Jesus is king over everything in your life, even when things feel chaotic and unstable. And they're there to stand with you and proclaim Jesus' victory because Jesus enters in a donkey, but that doesn't mean he's not victorious. He comes in victory and all authority on heaven and earth has been given to him. So if you need prayer, please go back and pray with them. The rest of us, we're going to have a good old celebration.